Hi, I'm Aaron Harmon. And I'm Diane Cox. Welcome to Inside Out Quality. Both Diane and I build and implement quality systems in the biotech and medical device industry. But we often get asked, is this really necessary? How do we know if we are doing too much too early? Or do we even need a quality system? Our goal is to explore questions like these through real-life events and experiences shared by our guests from various regulated industries. We will show you why quality is not just about compliance and how, when it's done right, it can help your product and company improve lives and make a difference. A paper published in the Journal of Virology in 2010 exposed a complex problem for the FDA and vaccine manufacturers. The problem was a pig virus called porcine circovirus 1, or PCV1. This widespread virus doesn't appear to cause disease in pigs. However, in the mid-1990s, a new strain of PCV was found that caused wasting and poor growth and mortality in weaning piglets. Researchers named this virus PCV2 for porcine circovirus 2. The paper in 2010 didn't report anything new about these viruses in terms of disease or pigs, but instead it was where they were found in children's vaccines, Rotorix in particular, which was used to protect kids against rotavirus infections. On March 22nd, the FDA immediately recommended Rotorix's use to be suspended. Anyways, there was another vaccine in the market for childhood rotavirus called Rotatech. But when researchers looked hard enough, it was announced on May 6th that they had discovered the virus in there as well. These vaccines have been in the market since 2006 and 2008. They have been through extensive safety tests and into millions of children without issues. Rotavirus, on the other hand, caused more than 200,000 ER trips annually before vaccines became available in the U.S. and globally kills 450,000 children under the age of five annually. Based on the information and expert meetings, the FDA chose to allow the vaccines to remain on the market. Merck and GSK went to work removing the contaminants. How does this happen? And how can companies reduce the chances of a complicated product recall once products have reached the market? These are the questions of this episode. And with us to help answer them is Dr. Dick Hesse. Dr. Hesse, can you tell us how you got into virology? I know you get quite a history. Uh, so, yeah, I uh, went to college. I got graduated with a uh, um, major in biology and minors in chemistry and teaching. And um, my last two years of college, I worked full-time at a packing house. And uh, when I... When it came time to graduate, I discovered that I would take about a $5,000 cut in salary uh, to, from being a meat cutter to being a teacher. And uh, since I was already married and had uh, one kid, I decided that probably wasn't a very good thing to do. I remembered um, some of my childhood heroes, and one of those was Walter Reed. And mm -hmm. I thought, wow, I wonder if the Army has something for me since I already have my degree. I looked into it, and lo and behold, they did. Uh, the program was called O1H20, and I went down and uh, actually signed up for the program. had to take a qualifying test. I took it and passed with flying colors. And then uh, a month later, I found myself at Fort Detrick, Maryland, uh, at the United States Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases. and. Uh, Smartest thing I ever did. I knew that I was going into the virology section. Um, I got to work with Dr. Pete Jarling, and uh, we worked on really, really interesting diseases, the encephalitis viruses, eastern and western Venezuelan. And then eventually I uh, graduated to the BSL 4 agents, where I worked with uh, predominantly loss of fever virus in a spacesuit, and um, the training I got in the Army for virology was absolutely wonderful. Uh, from there, I went on, finished my master's degree and PhD, and that's how it all started. This. I told Diane your story about getting your, your suit punctured. Yeah, that's a <laughs> yeah, really interesting time. Um, you know, we were working on, on Lhasa, and we had a room full of hot monkeys, about, I don't know, probably 20 monkeys in the room. And I was uh, connecting and disconnecting from airlines into the spacesuit. And I, I pulled the one, and all of a sudden my spacesuit went flat. And I looked down, and there was oh, probably an eight inch tear in my spacesuit. 
And once again, with a room full of hot monkeys that we had just challenged. Actually, mm-hmm. they were infectious at that point. Some of them, some of them were clinical. And, uh, you know, um, at that point, I was pissed off. I went back through the, the chemical shower and then through the regular shower. And uh, have you ever read The Hot Zone? Yep. Yeah. So that's where I used to work as The Hot Zone. And, um, yeah, I ended up uh, racing hell with uh, our uh, NCOIC, the sergeant command. And he said, uh, Specialist Hesse, stay right where you're at. They called the commander of the institute and all the division chiefs. And a half hour later, I met with them all. They sent me back to the uh, to Lhasa land. And uh, about a half hour after that, they escorted me to the slammer. And I spent the next two weeks in isolation um, with under lock and key, uh, bulletproof, uh, breakproof uh, glass windows. Um, yeah, they were waiting to see if I'd live or die. There was mm-hmm. no real therapy, no antivirals or anything at that point in time. Fortunately, Excellent. nothing happened. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's a time in my life I'll never forget. I love how they sent you back to work first. Go. <laughs> well, <laughs> there was, you know, they had the, the gray portion of the loss of land and then the hot portion. So I was in the gray portion. Um, that way, you know, I was contained is what it was. Mm. You had to have special clearance in order to get in there. And yeah, only a few people could do it. So <laughs> that's a way of containing me. But, yeah. mm-hmm. wow. so, interesting story. So in the case of uh, Rotorix and Rotatech, they ended up with this PCV1 and 2 contamination. Mm-hmm. How does contamination occur in vaccines like this? Well, using biological components uh, in the cell cultures. Uh, fetal calf serum or calf serum or serum of some type uh, often has adventitious agents in it. And uh, adventitious agent is whatever happened to be present in one of the animals that um, this, the biological sample came from, the biological component, I guess is probably a better word. Uh, obviously, serum, you use that to grow cell cultures. Uh, as a critical ingredient, fetal calf serum in particular, that has quite a number of different adventitious agents that come along with it. And some of these infected calves that are bled, they don't know that they're there. It's in low numbers. Um, in the case of uh, the circovirus, it wasn't probably wasn't so much the serum, but the trypsin that was probably contaminated with uh, circovirus one and or circovirus two. Um, and you know, these viruses get into animals as just part of their, their normal environment. They become infected. Uh, if they're having to be harvested, their tissues are harvested for preparation of cell cultures, uh, propagation of cell cultures, whatever the case is, then, uh, the adventitious agents show up and over time they become amplified in a normal biological application. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's where they come from. Are these contaminants obvious? So, you know, for example, how did PCV make it to the market without detection? So uh, a lot of them are, are not at all obvious in that they don't generate. First of all, if you're not looking for it, you're not going to find it. Um, if the virus in question happens to be a non-cytopathic virus or a mildly cytopathic virus, um, or has a cytopathic characteristic similar to, and here I'm being a little bit cautious, similar to the vaccine virus, it would be mass. Now, having said that, you should be running negative control cultures that stay negative, but um, some of them don't stay negative all the time, or it could be a delayed, uh, delayed growth pattern. It's a low-level contaminant. You know, they're only going to hold the, the cultures for a period of time. And if it's a slow grower, then it can be growing in the culture and not show up. But in the case of the circoviruses, they really are apathogenic as far as causing cytopathic effect in the cells that the human vaccine was grown in, in this particular case. 
Uh, you know, it could be an animal vaccine because a lot of these superviruses get into the multiple um, cell cultures and to cough and grow. So this isn't a problem of human vaccines or animal vaccines. It's generally all vaccines. And it can be chicken viruses, it can be circle viruses, it can be cattle viruses. Um, there's just a, quite a number of, uh, you know, viruses out there that will grow in multiple cell, cell cultures. And um, yeah, that's where they come from. You had mentioned, you know, negative controls, and you mentioned um, the timing that some of these viruses might take to mm-hmm. to show. Um, right. And I'm I'm wondering, I guess, are there are there other ways to identify these contaminants? Well, the classical method, yeah, has been cell culture, and mm-hmm. does it cause cytopathic effects, CPE? Um, yeah, there's a lot of other ways to do it, and. You know, we thought we were doing a fine job when we were using fluorescent antibody testing uh, and labeling antibodies against viruses X, Y, or Z with a, with a fluorescent tag and then looking for the presence of these non-cytopathic viruses in the cell culture. And that, you know, usually works good, but that's directed testing. Um, if you happen to have a, a non-cytopathic virus, that you don't know is there and you don't have the proper antibody with the fluorescent tag on it, you're going to miss it. Mm. This is a, a period of, a, of many, many, many years where, you know, the testing has evolved and has improved all the time. In the case of the rotavirus, the human rotavirus vaccines that were contaminated, they picked that up with um, virus sequencing and then uh, also um, in situ hybridization with uh, both prior sequencing, next generation sequencing, um, and the, the pan microarrays, they're detecting nucleic acid in uh, the test sample. And the nice thing about those is um, they're, in both cases, they're specific for nucleic acid, but a given class of viral nucleic acid from a given pathogen. Um, and it works because, you know, it, it'll pick up, it's very, very sensitive, it'll pick up a small amount of nucleic acid and give a positive signal. Mm-hmm. Those are directed tests where you have a specific target that's embedded or one that's cross-reactive, and that'll give you hints as to what you're dealing with if you uh, get a positive signal. Probably better techniques that are out there right now is next generation sequencing. And basically that sequences everything, amplifies and sequences everything in a given um, sample. And then you get the nucleotide readouts and it assembles everything. And that's that's by far the best uh, procedure that we want to be using nowadays. Are these methods part of traditional development now for vaccines, whether it's animal or human? Mm -hmm. Um, Yes and no. So once again, on the human side, the 21 CFR, I don't know exactly what the rules and regulations are. On the 9 CFR side, they are starting to be. And the reason I'm saying that is um, a number of vaccine contaminants that have shown up in, say, the modified live DVD vaccines went through the standard testing and they went through and, and passed with flying colors. Uh, but wild type, the pathogenic wild type virus was still present in the, in actually the master seed. And if they would have been using next generation sequencing, they would have got a whole bunch of sequences. They would have been able to align and shown that there were actually two very, very closely related viruses but one had a, uh, a gap in sequence. And then they, you know, look at that and actually figure out that there's a, a different virus there that shouldn't be there. And then from that, they could have figured out what was going on. Mm-hmm. The other part of that is we had evidence from the field that this particular vaccine was causing disease in cattle. And uh, at a much greater rate than what um, would have been expected when you vaccinate a stressed cattle. And, yep, lo and behold, it went to the diagnostic lab. 
we applied uh, modern diagnostic techniques to it, and we certainly could figure it out. The other thing that's nice about next generation sequencing is if you do find a pathogen present or a unexpected virus present in the sample, you can you already get sequence from uh, that particular procedure. Um, you can pick out conserved areas, do alignments with other viruses in that same uh, category, that same class of viruses. Uh, you can pick out uh, consistent areas or unique areas of the genome and then develop PCRs, which are even more sensitive than uh, the next-gen sequencing. So did that answer yeah. a little bit? Yeah. 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 Next-gen sequencing is wonderful, but it's not the end-all, be-all. Um, because there's a lot of contaminating nucleic acid. Like I said, it amplifies everything. And if the contaminating virus is present in a lesser amount than what uh, the other nucleic acid is of the, you know, that you're trying to amplify, then you'll miss it or only get a partial reads on it. Now we'll take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Today's startups become tomorrow's growth engines. In South Dakota, we're entering a new stage of expansion for our biotech industry, and you'll want to be part of it. Hi, I'm Joni Johnson, Executive Director of South Dakota Biotech. We're the state affiliate of the International Bio Organization, and we're proud to be leading a state that's driving innovation to feed, fuel, and heal the world. South Dakota Biotech is here to inform, to connect, and to advocate for our critical industry. Whether you're directly involved in biotechnology or looking to learn more about it, we want to hear from you. Find us at www.sdbio.org. Now, back to the show. Dr. Hesse, could you explain for us how a vaccine manufacturer would make a vaccine similar to the rotavirus vaccines? Yeah, there are many different vaccines out there, and we're talking about traditional vaccines in that traditional in the fact that these competent viruses are grown in cell cultures. So viruses need cells in order to live and replicate. So what you do for any vaccine and any traditional vaccine production system, especially the modified live ones, um, you find a cell culture that the virus likes to grow in, you um, through a variety of testing, quote, purify the virus and, quote, purify the cell line. And then you'll inoculate the virus into uh, the cell line. And the virus will grow and um, you harvest the virus from the infected cells. And if it's going to be a kill vaccine, you'll kill it and throw an adjuvant in after it's been concentrated the right uh, antigenic mass, immunogenic mass. If it's a modified live, you will um, dilute it to the proper titer or the proper amount of live virus and then uh, put it in a stabilizer. Uh, it's usually a sugar protein mixture and then freeze dry it. And then at the time of vaccination, you would rehydrate the modified live and inject that into the animal or if it's an oral vaccine, feed it to them orally. Uh, in the case of the kill vaccines, um, they are killed and then mixed with an adjuvant, something that will stimulate an immune response. Uh, those two are mixed together. And then uh, at the time of injection, or at the time of vaccination, that adjuvant uh, virus, killed virus mixture are injected into animals. Or well, animals, people are animals too. So, I mean, that's, that's you know, the 50,000 view of vaccines, of traditionally produced vaccines. Um, anymore, there's a, a variety of other ways of doing it where you take a, a portion of the viral genome that is causing disease, say coronavirus, let's talk coronavirus. Um, uh, the spike protein on the outside of the virion, there's a little spike, that's why they're called coronas and they're all the way around. That happens to be the point of attachment for the virus to the cells of the animal, the human or pig or cow or whatever, 
uh, and it attaches to the either the respiratory epithelium or say the enterocytes. And you make antibodies to that spike protein that attaches to the cell that the virus would infect in the case of disease. Well, the antibodies are against that attachment point, in this case, the spike protein. Um, when they come in contact with the virus, they'll actually bind to it and prevent the virus, the, the wild-type virus, from attaching to the cell and infecting it. So that's basically how you know, the vaccines tend to work. You can do that antibody against the spike by having a conventional vaccine, or you can actually take um, the viral, the portion of the viral genome that codes for the spike protein and insert that into an expression vector of some kind, either another virus or a bacteria, or uh, many different ways of doing that. Uh, yeast, just a lot of different ways of doing it. Um, and then generate lots of that spike protein and harvest that and include that as a vaccine. The, even another way of doing it, and that's what uh, some of the COVID vaccines are, is the mRNA, where they'll actually take mRNA that, from a virus and that portion of it, and uh, that will code for the spike protein, and they can actually inject messenger RNA into an individual, and if they get everything right as far as concentrations and sites of replication, uh, uptake into the cells is probably a better way of saying that, uh, then it will produce that spike protein and, uh, and the body will generate an immune response to that. So it sounds like there's a, there's a number of different ways to make vaccines. And, you know, with that, there's probably other examples where some of those materials could have had contaminants. Are there other cases of contaminated vaccines that you've heard of? Oh yeah, a lot um, on the human side as well as on on you know the animal side. Um, so the the first one that I ever became aware of was back in the days when I was in the army at Fort Detrick, and we, you know, I used to work with a lot of the arboviruses, yellow fever, uh, eastern, western, uh, e uh, eastern equine encephalomyelitis and stuff. Those vaccines were traditionally made. Um, some of them were modified live, so the yellow fever was, or the, the encephalitis viruses, the eastern and western B, they were all killed. Or, well, eastern and western B was still alive. But they were grown in chick embryo fibroblasts. And the one that my boss uh, told me about was the yellow fever vaccine. And that was a very, very effective vaccine. It was a modified live. It was uh, really stopped yellow fever in its tracks. And if you're working in the tropics, you wanted to make sure that you had it. But when they started looking closer, they found that it was contaminated with avian leukosis virus. And the avian leukosis was from the chick cells that the, the yellow fever virus strain was grown in. They knew it was there, but in order to clean it up, they would have to basically um, abolish that vaccine that had proven efficacy and proven safety. And uh, there was no good evidence that avian leukosis was causing any problems at all. So at that point in time, they had made a decision that uh, just leave well enough alone and uh, we'll the vaccine imperfect as it is in its existing form and, and uh, move on from there. And that was back in the 70s when I first learned about that. Since that point in time, there's been you know, a number of other different vaccine contaminants that have shown up on the human side and on the animal side, mainly on the animal side that I'm aware of. Um, and some don't cause any problems at all. Some cause real major problems. So there's not, you know, 
in a perfect world, there would not be any contaminants present. But in an imperfect world, if there is a contaminant present and it doesn't cause a problem, and the vaccine itself is really beneficial, then you leave that particular generation of vaccine alone and then move on to the next one. So given that there are issues where there's contamination that do cause problems, mm-hmm. um, I guess what advice would you offer manufacturers developing products where that contamination could be an issue? Yeah, so, and, and here I'll, I'll speak on on the 9 CFR on the animal vaccines. That's what I have the most experience with. So, obviously, all the master cell stocks, the master seeds that are used to produce vaccines, they have a working range, and that's X through X plus 5. And you can only make vaccine through those five passages of the master seed. Um, they are always checked and at the beginning and at the end and to make sure that everything's clean. And once that happens, then you make the assumption that, and historically what the assumption has been that they're going to be good. Um, there won't be reversion to virulence or, you know, everything will be stable. Other Adventist agents didn't show up during that initial testing. So you make the assumption that that master seed is clean. Um, but while you're doing that, you're passing it in cells. And the cell cultures themselves, the master cell stock, that's also been tested for adventitious agents. And then you usually freeze down master lots of that master cell stock. And you have usually 20 passes, historically 20 working passages that you can make vaccine from. And the assumption is all the ingredients that go into it have been tested according to 9 CFR, and they're all shown to be free of, uh, of uh, contaminants. Well, that isn't always the case. And sometimes some of the working stocks of viruses at the X plus 3 or X plus 4 level, they are grown in higher passage production cells that have a contaminant that don't show up. And even though the initial master seed testing was good 20 years ago, different lots of biological materials, trypsin or fetal calf serum, have been used and have been introduced, and contaminants can come in under under those conditions. And then, yeah, then at that point, it's contaminated. Um, it's really compounded, and the vaccine I'm thinking of right here it happened to be. It was a five-way bovine respiratory uh, disease vaccine, and um, the bovine respiratory syncytial virus working stock at the X plus three level turns out to be contaminated with a BVD, a non-cytopathic BVD virus, and. Uh, all the other, the IBRs were clean, the BVD stocks were clean, BVD1, BVD2, the PI3 was clean, uh, but the RSV was contaminated with a non-cytopathic BVD. So, that, you know, that turned out to be a, a really bad contaminating uh, uh, problem that cost, basically cost the company millions and millions of dollars and the abolishment of that particular uh, vaccine strain, which in its earlier passages uh, was quite beneficial, quite efficacious. Early hard work to make sure everything is clean will pay off in the long run. (laughs) Well, early hard work, that's a requirement. That's absolutely required before the government will allow these vaccines to be produced. They have to be shown to be free of adventitious agents to the best of that ability. But my advice to the companies is don't rest on your laurels uh, and don't rely on old-fashioned um, 9 CFR or 21 CFR testing for adventitious agents using the traditional methods, the indirect fluorescent antibody testing or uh, um, you know appearance of cell culture or things like that. And uh, always look on... The materials that you buy, the raw materials, don't look for just the presence in a single passage of that that component of the cell culture system. 
look for multiple passes and look for and use modern technology, um, deep sequencing, uh, next generation sequencing, same thing. Use some of those techniques at pass one and then pass it, you know, five, 10, 15 times and see if there's any amplification in the signal. And if there is, then you know that you've got a contaminant, you know, present and it's uh, infectious. BVD. Um, most cell cultures, most live, well, most cell cultures like fetal calf serum. But BVD is present in almost every single lot of fetal calf serum that you'll ever see. The, the solution for that is to, quote, kill the BVD that's present in the fetal calf serum lots. I don't know if people are aware, but they collect slunk calves in the packing houses and they suck the blood out of them, out of these slunk calves that are coming down the chute. And uh, that's what they, they use for fetal calves, calf serum that goes into cell culture. Um, there are uh, in utero infected calves. Uh, in these lots, virtually every lot will have some, and um, that's the source of the virus. What has been done in the past is they'll inactivate the fetal calf serum with either gamma irradiation or beta-prophylactone treatment to kill adventitious agents in the serum, and um, that seems to be a possible solution for this. Now, the problem with that, that philosophy, that killing with gamma irradiation or um, BPL inactivation is the level of the contamination. Um, most of these techniques were, are 99.999% effective. And that sounds really good, doesn't it? 99.999. That, that's killing everything, right? Well, that's actually five logs. Contamination in some of these uh, fetuses can be upwards of 10 logs, 10 logs base 10. So if you kill five logs of that base 10, 10 log material, you still have 100,000 virus particles that haven't been touched. So when you do the math, um, if there's a lot of contaminating virus present in a lot, uh, you know, you're not going to get it all. And some will sneak through. And the other part of that, if, if you don't get it all, but you got most of it, some of these lots, you know, it's, a, well, a thousand liters. Well, over the course of a thousand liters growing in cell culture, one or two particles get out and they're amplified in a cell culture system and you keep propagating those cells, eventually it'll break out. Uh, most people just don't realize the math behind mm -hmm. that. The you know geometric um, expansion of the viruses that's occurring. So even though you think it's you know just really really good, it might not be as good as you think. So all that just what I wanted to say is test the the early passage stuff, but make sure you test the later passage stuff, and use the modern technology. Use next gen sequencing. Um, deep sequencing so you can pick up anything and everything that's there. Once you have a hint of something there, um, obviously go with uh, PCRs. They will, they're even more sensitive, quite, quite a bit more sensitive. And you can amplify um, contaminants out and clearly show what, what's there, but uh, at, a, at an even greater level of sensitivity. But things change. And if the nucleic acid changed, uh, minor um, changes in the genome, then your PCR might not work anywhere anymore. That's why I like to use a method of specific um, methodology, such as PCR, that will pick up uh, uh, you know a given region of a genome versus the non-specific, like next generation, that picks up everything and amplifies from there. Are you seeing companies take a more preventive approach to contamination, like using ingredients that are not animal origin? The short answer is yes, they are. And uh, usually plant origin is what they're trying to look at. And that works for some things. 
um, some of the key key ingredients. We used to have a media at InterVet that was developed. They called it veggie media. Uh, it was ironic because the person who developed it was a vegetarian. He wanted to convert everyone into being a vegan, including his cell cultures or these cell cultures. Uh, the interesting thing like is these mammalian cells didn't always like um, the veggie media and some of their characteristics uh, dramatically changed as far as their ability to support virus replication once they started switching out some of these uh, um, media components, animal origin components for plant origin components. So there are attempts to do it, but they don't always work. Or sometimes they even work better. Uh, one thing that we found with veggie media is we could take uh, anchorage-dependent cells and start growing in the presence of veggie media, and all of a sudden they became anchorage independent. And that really lent itself to growing uh, large, large batches of cells in bioreactors. I'm not sure if this is relevant or if we should include it, but I, I just out of curiosity, I'm wondering if there are other contaminants during the manufacturing process, maybe not related to the actual components of the vaccine, but any yeah, other contaminants there are. that could there, there, be there certainly are. And, mm-hmm. you know, those those traditional ones usually get picked up downstream before a final release. So a lot of times mold will show up. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the biggest ingredients um, that's in almost all of the veterinary vaccines is thimerosal, mercury compounds. Mm-hmm. And that's really good for keeping uh, bacteria and mold down. The problem is the autism thing and blaming uh, uh, autism with uh, thimerosal, with the mercury. Uh, They tried to get that out of the vaccines. Well, when they did that, they found all these mold contaminants that were showing up that uh, Mm. were being suppressed by the the thimerosal in the raw I shouldn't call it a raw ingredient, but in the vaccine-containing material that was needed for further manufacturing. If you look at government requirements, whether it be USDA or FDA, there are a number of things around material that you use, and Mm -hmm. it has to have specifications, and you have to have the testing that you do of it, and you have to look at risks of those components. So if I'm using FBS, I have to be aware that there could be contaminants. And then right. I have a plan of how I'm going to test for that. And if I do that and follow those requirements and do it well, and even integrate new technology as it becomes available, then I can prevent having to, at some time later in the future, possibly recall my product or have to do a lot of rework because of the contamination. Right. Redevelop. Yeah. The rework, that goes exactly with the question that you just asked. We had a really expensive um, horse vaccine to make. And at one point, it showed up with a contaminant, an external contaminant that was, you know, after, after each component was grown up and then put together into a final vaccine, then the contaminant showed up in the, I think it was a mold or something. Well, they, because it was so expensive, uh, the, the manager of the plant said, rework it and kill it and make sure it doesn't show up, but make sure that it passes all the potency tests. So they did rework it. It did, uh, they killed the contaminant and, and it passed all the potency tests, but that was illegal. They went ahead and pushed it through and then um, somebody, blew the whistle on them. And it ended up costing half of middle management at that particular company their jobs, and rightfully so, um, because they they reluctantly were stiff-armed into doing something that was illegal. About that, <laughs> when you were there. Doug and Robin. Well, we had Doug and Robin on the first episode. so Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Doug and Robin are my best friends, so. Oh. Yeah, I've, the, I've heard yeah. a lot of stories about you from Doug. <laughs> which one do you remember the most the sandwich <laughs> yeah that was funny so the sa- from, from what i've heard of the sandwich story yeah. you had made sandwiches for a fishing trip 
You're both on the boat. It was Doug duck t- hunting. Yeah, it was duck okay. hunting, but yep. Mm-hmm. Doug takes a bite and thought it was not that good. So he threw it overboard. It had mayonnaise in it. <laughs> well, Doug didn't bring a lunch and I did. So I shared my lunch with him. <laughs> and he doesn't like mayonnaise. Not and a I fan, love huh? mayonnaise. And he took a bite. And then, I, you know, next thing I see is the sandwich I gave him floating by me. And I'm like, God damn. I was hungry. Perfectly good sandwich. <laughs> well, thanks a lot. Well, have a great day and we'll talk to you later. You too. Thank you so much. That was great talking with Dick. But with us today, we also have Julia Shar from MedGene. Uh, they're a local company and doing a lot of great work in vaccines. Welcome to the show, Julia. Thank you very much. We have heard a lot of great things about MedGene. Can you tell the listeners about your company? MedGene Labs is a company in Brookings, South Dakota is where we're based. We are licensed to manufacture and sell animal biologics. We help veterinarians and animal producers protect their livestock by using precisely constructed immunological products and services. So what that means essentially is that we work very closely with a veterinarian and we work very closely with a producer to provide them with products to help improve their immunological programs so that we make sure that we get out to the field to help those producers only use what is required in their herds. So we don't want to sell them or insist that they use a bunch of product that really they're not seeing disease pressure from. So we heard today about something going wrong in a few vaccines, but so many vaccines get it right. What contributes to MedGene success in the vaccine space? It comes down to our company's mission. It is our mission to provide the immunological solutions designed with the attention to the precision, sound technology, and to science. So we work to ensure that those products that we produce are needed to protect those animals And again, lower the production cost for the producers. We work to build those relationships with herd health teams, provide solutions with what is needed, and do not require the producers, like I mentioned earlier, to put products into their herds that are not needed. So in the traditional vaccine world with animal health, I'm used to large multivalent vaccines Mm -hmm. where it is this vaccine goes to every animal, but they're getting a lot of antigens that may not be relevant to their herd. Right. So if they're... In those types of situations where they are commercially licensed products, you're stuck with what what is already in that product. So you may not have that disease pressure from a specific outside force, so to speak, or an an outside disease pressure. So we don't want to have to have those animals be forced to use that, that type of system in their herd health, where we are much more focused based on what really the problem is to help them get control over those disease pressures. Uh, so when the story with uh, Rotatec and Rotorix vaccines, mm-hmm. there was the contamination that kind of snuck through. Are there any tips that you've learned for listeners on how to prevent contamination in their products? Our best approach to making sure that our quality assurance program is sound is that we ensure that we use very trusted services and very trusted sources. So that's where really where we start. We know that we need to put out a good, solid product out into the field. We know that we have to uh, put out a product that has our name written on it. So we're not going to jeopardize our inputs on our products without ensuring that the inputs come from a trusted, valuable source. Mm -hmm. So that's really where we start. Uh, We make sure that everything that we use in our product is, is backed up. We have had several meetings working internally with our QA department to ensure that we have specific levels met, that we have outlined very definitively what the requirements are for those inputs before we'll allow them into our production scheme. Yeah, that sounds like a very, what's the word I'm looking for? Robust. (laughs) And systematic. (laughs) Very. Um, It takes a lot of effort, a lot of work on the front side of it. It takes a lot of time, a lot of patience to get it right. But once we get it right, we know that what we're putting out into that, into the field, into those animals, we're very confident in. And the other thing that I'd like to encourage our listeners to not be afraid to do is to rely on other experts, rely on the people who have experienced some of these hiccups, so to speak, or have really hard, solid, good quality assurance programs. 
rely on those people who have gone through the process to make sure that they can pick up some tips and tricks. And I made the, the comment that it sounds very systematic. It sounds that kind of the approach in medical devices. So we work off of specifications and knowing that if I'm going to have this component in my device, I have these specifications that I need from the supplier. Yep. And when it comes in, I can test it back to those specifications and ensure that what's coming in is what I need and then it's going to work. Right. And it sounds like that's exactly what you guys are doing as well. Absolutely. The other thing that we have a very robust system on is any recall scenarios. We've tried to think through what that recall scenario would look like in the event that something happens where we need to check and and validate our information that's come back from those producers. And that's exactly what we have done is we have worked really hard on the forefront to ensure that everything is in order and everything is black and white. Because once we get those situations, and whether it be a recall or even just some questions back from, from the user, we are very solid and we know exactly where something has come. We know exactly that we'll be able to pinpoint what where something may have may have fallen fallen short. That's interesting. I'm not not a lot of companies will kind of do that that uh, forefront thinking about where the product will end up. They kind of just are assuming there aren't going to be these problems or, you know, of course they they have these kind of rosy glasses when they're going to launch that everything's fine and we don't expect complaints, we don't expect a recall. And then, you know, when one does happen, then it's kind of the scramble right. that they have to go through. So really really important to prepare for those types of events. In, in the case of these two vaccines, the Rotorix and Rotatech, I think it would have been kind of hard to foresee this contamination because at the time there wasn't some of the tools in place that we have now. But what I think helped those vaccines stay on the market and, and they were effective despite having the contamination is that they had gone through all the safety trials. So I do, I wouldn't be surprised if we see something similar to this happen again. But that is why there's all the safety trials that go in and all the work showing that the benefit outweighs the risk. Absolutely. And I think part of moving forward, what's going to be helpful and beneficial is having those open conversations and not trying to hide behind a wall, trying to hide behind the the what happens if or what could we have done or why shouldn't we have or let's not talk about that. I think that when it comes to internal quality assurance, having those conversations with everybody involved is making sure that it's not a finger pointing exercise. It is one of those situations where this happened. We could not have done anything in in the forefront to prevent it. Let's talk about it. Let's address it. And let's make sure that, that what we have done today we can ensure doesn't happen again in the future. Learn from your mistakes. <laughs> yep. Or others, I should say. Right. Learn from other mistakes. Uh, I will add that it, for medical devices, for pharmaceuticals, in the GMP space, you are required to test all material coming in. Right. If it's going to go into product, there has to be some kind of test. And it may be a C of A, depending on the risk level of that item coming in. And it may go all the way down to very detailed analysis of what it is and what other contaminants could be in there. There have been the recent cases in the drug space of blood pressure medication where there was a change that had happened at a supplier and the result of that was the introduction of a carcinogen and the FDA had to go down the same thought pattern of, do we pull this off the market because of the risk of cancer? And if we do that, we take away someone's medication for regulating blood pressure. And they ended up leaving those on the market while the companies went to resolve the problem with the carcinogen getting introduced. But a similar scenario just on the drug side. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting from our perspective where we're a little bit different because we're governed by the USDA versus the FDA. Mm-hmm. So things are a little different for us from a GMP requirement, from what we are required to do to get product out the door where everything has to meet specific specifications prior to us being able to release it, tying down our processes, tying down our our areas and our systems and our, our facilities. But there really isn't a lot of hard structure on all of these buckets that we have to fill from the USDA. They don't, they don't give you your 45 pages 
of these are exactly what you have to do. So we kind of, we do what we have to do to make sure that we can put out the best product where, where we have some of the flexibility to ensure that our systems are, are put in appropriately. Mm -hmm. I think that's the right approach. If you have the end product and your goal is the best product for your customers, then that should lead all the activities up to it. Absolutely. Yeah. No, and that's, you know, and MedGene's new. I think, I was just thinking about this on the way down. We've been licensed, our facility has been licensed, I think, for almost two and a half years, going on three years. So we're new. And and a lot of the people that we have employed with MedGene today don't have hundreds of years of cumulative experience producing animal vaccines. So we're, it, it's it's fun because it's it's exciting and it's something new and it's something to really approach from a non-standard thought process. How can we make the vaccines that we're sending out the door as good as they can be and yet having some of the new technology and some of the new innovative uh, pieces that are out there that we can utilize? So it's kind of fun. Well, thank you for being with us today. Yeah. Well, thank you very thank much. You. This was this was awesome, and I appreciate the the opportunity. And for those listening out there, thank you for joining us, and we look forward to making more episodes that hopefully you will enjoy also. We hope you enjoyed this episode. This was brought to you thanks to South Dakota Biotech Association. If you have a story you'd like us to explore and share, let us know by visiting www.sdbio.org. Other resources for quality include the University of South Dakota's Biomedical Engineering Department, where you can find courses on quality systems, regulatory affairs, and medical product development. Also, if you live in the Sioux Falls area, check out Quibit, a local quality assurance professionals network. You can find out more about Quibit by clicking on the link on our website too. Diane and I would like to thank several people, but a few who stand out are Nate Peppel for his support with audio mixing, Barbara Doral Christian for her support with graphics design and web, and lastly, the support from South Dakota Bio.